Welcome again to Change Your Mind About You, where we are on a journey together to awaken to our true identity. I'm your host, Kevin Mack, and today we begin a discussion of what is necessary for humanity to be perfect as Jesus instructed us to be. In our previous episode, we stated that Jesus taught us that in order to eradicate fear and return to our original God-created state of being, we must learn to love all humanity and, in fact, all creation equally. His directive here is to be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect, as it says in Matthew 5.48. Well, our egocentric minds look at this teaching and respond, that's impossible. But if it were impossible, would Jesus have taught it? If he were teaching us to return to a state of mind that is unachievable, he would be, to paraphrase Oswald Chambers, quote, the greatest taunter to ever confront humanity. Is such a view of Jesus consistent with his character described in the, in the Gospels? Hardly. In fact, Jesus goes on to describe the pathway to experience our original God-created state of perfection in response to a question posed to him by one of the religious leaders of his day. Let's read that again in Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 through 40. Jesus said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So the first and greatest command is to love God fully in heart, soul, and mind. In other words, to love God with all of your being. Heart, soul, and mind here are joined together as one. All your heart, all your soul, all your mind. They all act together and are the same. They're in the same place. Joined together toward that one goal of loving God fully. There is a second command that is of equal importance, uh, meaning it's actually part of the first. Love your neighbor as yourself. So now let's take a look, a more extensive look, at this quintessential command of Jesus that forms really the core of his teaching. It's basically saying, love God with all of your being which is what the unity of heart, soul, and mind represents. Another way of putting this is to allow your being to both become and express only love. Remember, all of us were created in the image and likeness of God, as it says in Genesis 1 and verses 26 and 27. 
God is love. 1 John 4 and verse 8. So is the image of God. We were created by him to reflect his love at all times and in all ways. We stated in prior episodes that fallen humanity's condition is one of a split mind. How does this manifest in the world? Well, we have a dilemma. With our minds in a split state, we're able to acknowledge that we want to love and be loved by others. We are naturally attracted to the ideas Jesus expressed and honor him as one of the great teachers to grace humanity as a result. However, due to the split in our minds, we find it nearly impossible to always live as he lived. Paul expresses this dilemma clearly in Romans chapter 7 and verse 15, where he wrote, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. (laughs) People want to be good, but fail to carry out this desire with any degree of consistency. Thus, we all live by the adage, nobody's perfect. Yet such a belief is in direct opposition to Jesus' command to be perfect. So the first step in keeping this first and greatest commandment is to heal our split minds. How do we go about that? Well, we have to re-educate ourselves. So let's start doing that right now. Let's go back to the first and greatest commandment. Uh, This time we're going to read it in Luke 10 and verse 27, where it says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind. This statement is made by Jesus with a passionate intensity. This kind of love is a fiery and all-consuming desire. In other words, you really want this with all your being. So you diligently seek it, certain that God always rewards those who earnestly seek him, as it says in Hebrews 11.6. Part of the reason we have not understood this teaching is due to the broad meaning associated with the English word love. Now, the Greek word translated love in both Luke 10.27 and Matthew 22.37 is agapao, A-G-A-P-A-O. However, there is something that needs to be pointed out here. That there are at least four different Greek words that may be translated into English as love. In the New Testament, we primarily, we typically see two of them. Agapao, as is used here in Luke 10 and Matthew 22, and phileo, uh, P-H-I-L-E-O, phileo, describes a type of brotherly love 
and implies kind affection for another, as in, say, a friendship. While agapao is considered to be love executed as a matter of will and judgment. It expresses outgoing concern for others. It has to do with morality, social conduct, and reflects deeply held beliefs. So agapao, while related to phileo, is more of a deeply internal phenomenon. While there's both somewhat of an internal and external aspect of phileo. Even though agapao implies a deeper level of love than phileo, in terms of the application we're discussing here, we need to ask ourselves a question. Does loving someone with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength is it merely a matter of deeply held convictions, a product of your belief system, a matter of will and judgment? Or are we talking about an even deeper yearning, which is an innate, passionate, burning desire? The teaching of Jesus, to be perfect, therefore, as your Heavenly Father is perfect, is an earnest plea for us to return to our original God-created state of being. What is the biblical description of that state? Let's go back to Genesis 2, and we're going to read verses 23 through 25. There it writes, or there is written, Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. The first point we recognize here, upon creation of the woman, is the man's recognition that the woman is part of himself. This is consistent with what Paul wrote to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, where it says, In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body. Here the second part of the great command to love your neighbor as yourself is pictured. It is pictured in the husband-wife relationship. And the scripture in Genesis 2 verse 24 confirms this when it states that the man is to be united to his wife. The two are to become one. And how is the two becoming one flesh pictured in form? It's pictured by the ecstasy of sexual intercourse within the framework of the spiritual intent established for it by God at creation. 
That's what is meant in Genesis 2.25, where it says, The two were naked and felt no shame. Why did they feel no shame? Because the joining of the two, united as one, during sexual intercourse is meant to be a reflection of the ecstatic state of unity that exists eternally within the Godhead. But in the world, we refer to this type of love between two people as romantic love. The Greek word that corresponds to this form of love is eros, E-R-O-S. Ironically, eros is nowhere to be found in the New Testament. Why not? A recent article from LearnReligions.com gives us an idea by providing us some historical background regarding the usage of the word eros in the first century. The article says, quote, the connotation of the word, that's eros, became so culturally degraded by the first century that it was never once used in the New Testament. End quote. How was it degraded? At the time of the New Testament writing, Greek culture continued to have a heavy influence, even though the Roman Empire was the governing authority in the region. In Greek mythology, Eros was the name of the Greek god of passionate physical desire. He was the son and associate of the Greek goddess Aphrodite, the goddess of love, beauty, and desire. The temples of Aphrodite were places where prostitution was rampant. In at least one place, as many as a thousand women were sold as sex slaves to the temple with the proceeds they earned from their services rendered donated back to the goddess. In other words, the temples of Aphrodite were places where men single and married, went for so-called pleasure sex. Given the heavy influence of Greek culture in the second half of the first century now, when the bulk of the New Testament was written, it's not difficult to see why the use of the word eros fell out of favor with the New Testament writers. As a result, eros was deemed an inappropriate term to describe love toward God. However, before Greek culture became widespread, King Solomon in the Old Testament wrote about what can be referred to as the pure spirit of Eros. We see this in Song of Songs. Chapter 7, we're going to read verses 6 through 9. Solomon is speaking here about his beloved. He says, How beautiful you are, and how pleasing, my love, with your delights. Your stature is like that of the palm, and your breasts like clusters of fruit. 
I said I will climb the palm tree. I will take hold of its fruit. May your breasts be like clusters of grapes on the vine, the fragrance of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best wine. <laughs> yes, my friends, believe it or not, I am reading from the Bible. The author of Song of Songs, believed to be Solomon, here vividly portrays his passionate desire for his beloved. It is not merely the tender affection of a valued friendship, nor is it simply a matter of an outgoing concern and moral judgment driven by the conviction of one's beliefs. No, this love here speaks of a deeply intrinsic and really a mystical longing. Notice his beloved's thoughts in Song of Songs, chapter 3, the first four verses. She, she says, All night long on my bed, I looked for the one my heart loves. I looked for him but did not find him. I will get up now and go about the city through its streets and squares. I will search for the one my heart loves. So I looked for him, but I did not find him. The watchmen found me as they made their rounds in the city. Have you seen the one my heart loves? Scarcely had I passed them when I found the one my heart loves. I held him and would not let him go till I had brought him to my mother's house to the room of the one who conceived me. Before I comment on these verses, let's go back to Luke 10 and verse 27 and see how that great commandment is restated. It's stated there, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. In Song of Songs 3, the one my heart loves is repeated in all four consecutive verses. This is a love that reflects a deeply intrinsic and abiding passionate desire on the part of the woman for her beloved. Her loved one hadn't come to bed that night. So during the night, she gets up, she goes out and looks for him all over the city, asking people along the way if they've seen him. She was overwhelmed with desire to be with her loved one. That's obvious. And when she finally found him, she wouldn't let him go. How does this phrase, the one my heart loves, apply to the great command in Luke 10, 27? It says there, to love the Lord your God with all your heart. That love for God must be sought with a longing heart in a passionate yearning soul as the woman does in Song of Song 3. Such love is a consuming, 
fire that burns brightly within the depths of our soul for our beloved. Hebrews 12.29 says in the same way that God is a consuming fire. He is passionate in the same way about those he loves. And since we were created in his image and likeness, we are to be the same way. So given what we know about male and female as God created them, and the cultural influence extant during the time of the New Testament writings, which of the two Greek words do you think Jesus meant in the context of the great commandment? Not what was written, not what it says, but what Jesus meant. Did he mean agapao or eros? He is speaking of fervent passion an intrinsic yearning, an essentially mystical feeling of love. My friends, Jesus here is speaking about Eros and not Agapao. One of the great deceptions associated with the fall has been the gross distortion and misuse of sexual attraction, particularly in Greco-Roman culture, which has so deeply influenced both New Testament writers, translators, and even Western society, all of us in the Western world up to this very day. Sexual intercourse is designed to represent the oneness of spirit shared by the Father and the Son. It physically depicts the interpenetration of the divine masculine and feminine aspects of God. This is why sexual attraction is such a mystical phenomenon. It is of divine origin. And because it is of divine origin, there is a certain way to express that divinity through the sexual relationship. Both old and New Testaments express the objective of such relationships when they quote God as saying, Be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. In other words, through the intimacy of this particular relationship with one another, we reflect God's holiness, his completeness, his perfection, his oneness, with his son. I will refer to such relationships as holy relationships, and we will discuss how such relationships take shape in the next episode of Change Your Mind About You. Thank you for listening today. I'm your host, Kevin Mack, reminding you that the great command Jesus taught is to love God with all your being and love your neighbor as yourself. There is no better place on earth where this type of love is exemplified than in a committed, intimate relationship of male and female. The sexual union of two partners was created to 
picture the divine interpenetration that is oneness of the Father and the Son. Because such sexual union between lover and beloved represents a divinely ordained quality, that is, eros love, which is spiritual, it can apply to either heterosexual, homosexual, or transsexual intimate relationships. Remember, my friends, the flesh counts for nothing, as Jesus said in John 6, verse 63. Male and female reflect the divine aspects of the spiritual masculine and the spiritual feminine. In the spiritual realm, there is no gender. So gender differences or similarities in holy relationships on the physical plane intended to reflect the eternally ordained love of God are irrelevant. Otherwise, there can be no freedom, no equality. God is not a respecter of persons. Therefore, a holy relationship can either be heterosexual, homosexual, or transsexual. I hope today's episode was of value to you. I, of course, invite you to send me any questions or comments you may have about what we talked about today. Please send all correspondence by email to kevinmack at changeyourmindaboutyou.com. Thank you once again for joining me today. So until next time, take good care and be well, my friends.